All right. Good morning. My name is Daniel Miller. I am one of the elders here at Believer's Church, and I am excited for this morning. That, that last song, um, thank you, uh, is really great uh, kind of leading into the, the message because today we get kind of a cautionary tale of um, what not to do or kind of a worst case scenario like how things can turn out bad, right? And so um, that's, that's kind of what we're looking at today. And so to kind of set the tone, I have a few questions. Um, firstly, um, have you ever um, been following a, a list of ingredients or a list of uh, directions or, you know, a recipe or, or something of that nature and kind of decided like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change this a little bit, right? I'm going to do things a little bit differently than, uh, than what it says or, you know, I, I know a little better than this, whatever joker wrote these recipes or, or whatever. Anybody done that before? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, next question. Um, have any of you ever played or heard of the telephone game? Right, where you know you say something and then you pass it along and the next person, and by the end, things are a lot different than how they start. Okay, great. Third question to set this up. Have any of you ever attempted to put together furniture from IKEA? <laughs> right? Complicated list of instructions, and even if you really want to follow them really, really well, maybe things go the way they're supposed to, and maybe they don't. Okay, so what we have here is kind of, kind of all of those smashed together. And so Israel, um, after, you know, centuries and centuries of, or not centuries and centuries, generations, we'll say that, generations of um, them kind of doing whatever they want. So they have instructions, but they're, maybe they think they know best, right? So the um, the common refrain we get in the book of Judges is uh, there's no king in Israel and every, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, right? So that happened. And even when there were kings, they would rebel and different things. So, so people aren't, aren't doing the things that they've been told to do. Um, and they have, they have instructions, right? God has given them the law that they, they can follow, but there's a lot of things. And so it's hard, right? They don't always get it right, but also there are ways where they're on purpose going off track. And then, because of that, generationally, they are they're in rebellion, and so the, the people say, like, well, I know, I know better than what God says. I'm going to do my own thing, and then I'm going to pass that down to my, my children, the next generation. And then, they're going to say, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes, and I'm going to pass that down to the next generation, and, and so on and so forth. So we have this... Uh, I mean, you can imagine, after, after several generations, we are just going to have an absolutely convoluted mess of, of rebellion, and some people may not even know that they're in rebellion, and some people may, and it's just a, it's just a mess, right? So just imagine, if you played the telephone game with a group of people who um, were each kind of deciding to change the directions as they felt, and at the end, you had to be the person to put together the Ikea furniture, right, at the end of this line. Like, are things going to go well? No, they are not going to go well. And so that's what we see with Israel. Like, things are just bad. And they are bad in, in about every way, and they are bad in about the worst ways possible. Okay, so that's, that's kind of what we see here. Um, 
And, and the stakes are a lot higher than putting together a piece of Ikea furniture, right? Because we're talking about life and uh, a group of people. So um, join with me, if you would. We're going to read uh, Hosea, and we're going to start in chapter 4. And I'm just going to kind of chunk it into pieces, and we'll talk about each piece, because we're going to uh, ultimately go through all of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5. Uh, so Hosea chapter 4, here we go. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. So just in general, like the first three verses, uh, Hosea is laying out a general charge against the people. And he's just saying things are bad. They lack faithfulness or kind of like integrity. Uh, Kindness would be similar to compassion. And then knowledge of God. And over the course of these chapters, he's going to talk about knowledge in terms of like objective knowledge, like knowing the facts about God. They lack that, but they also lack uh, subjective knowledge. Like they don't know God. They are not um, acquainted with God. They're not close with God. Um, and so they're, they're lacking both of those. And then verse, four, verse two, he lists specific commands. These are some of these specific ways that they have uh, rebelled. They have uh, like swearing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery, um, so we have several of the commandments, and then uh, they break all bounds. So like societal norms, so like the ways that just generally people think they should associate with one another, those are out the window, um, and there's just violence everywhere, right? Bloodshed follows bloodshed. It's just, it's just bad. Um, and so he, he does a good job. This is not a great situation we're, we're stepping into. And, um, and so similar to like in the time of Elisha, there, there's also drought. And um, that's kind of God saying that, that he, he is bringing this about as a response to their rebellion um, in a way to bring about repentance. Um, and so the, those first three verses are just, he's kind of laying the framework for really a lot of the rest of the book. What's, what's going to come next? God is charging the people. Um, and then in verse 4, if we continue on, we see um, it says, Let no one contend and none accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet shall also st shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you've forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will, I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. It shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. And so those next, next section of verses, verses uh, 4 through 
10, uh, and kind of transitioning after 10, um, Hosea is specifically calling out the priests, the, the spiritual leaders of, of the people. And, and so the verse 4, he's saying, uh, let no one contend, let no one accuse. And he's like, I'm going to tell you where the problem lies. I'm going to tell you what started this, and it's the priests. It is the, the religious leaders uh, of the group. Um, sin is abundant, but we can, we can trace it back to where this starts. It starts with, with leadership. Um, in verse 5, we see that um, they are the, the spiritual leaders are leading out in sin and rebellion. And any time in, uh, in Hosea, in this passage, when it talks about the mother, that is referring to Israel. So Israel is, is sinning, and they are being led that way by the priests. Verse, verse 6, they ignored knowledge um, and teaching. The priests did. So if the priests are ignoring the knowledge, how are they? And they're supposed to be the ones that communicate that to the people. How is this going to happen? And it's not. And so we, we keep going. They, they ignored the sons. In verse 6, and uh, we talked about this several times, but in, in the culture, right, in um, Hebrew culture, um, what your father did, you did, right? And so the priests, their, their sons would have been priests, and so on. And so God, God is kind of saying, like, I'm done with you, right? You, you're, you're cut off. You're not, you're not doing your job. You're leading my people um, away. And so this would, this would have been a blow for sure. You have forgotten the law of your God. I will also forget your children, right? And this is, this is kind of coming back to the names of uh, the children that, that Dan talked about last week. Right, so so you're you're not my people anymore. He's he's being pretty direct with their sin, and he goes on. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. So it's just like compounding more and more sin, more people, more priests, more sin, over and over and over. And then verse eight, they feed on the sin of my people, and they are greedy for their iniquity. And this one, there's a little bit of controversy in like the translation of of this, but. But essentially, so sin could mean, in verse 8, sin could mean the sin offering, or sin could just mean like wickedness, like sin. But, but either way, what, what's happening here is the sacrificial system is so corrupt that the, the priests are using their position to like manipulate the people, right? So they like, as sin abounds, they are, are kind of pouring it on like, you need me to make you right with God, right? And so, like, I'm going to elevate myself, and, like, the sin is, like, causing these corrupt leaders to further their corruption, manipulate the people, and, and essentially the way, the way they have done it is it's, it's causing permissiveness for the people, right? I kind of, like, pay off the priest, or I, I do these things, and, and then I feel fine about myself, and the priests are getting rich with with these sacrifices that, that people are bringing. And so it is just like the whole sacrificial system that was supposed to um, be a way of dealing with sin is just, is even part of the problem. So just like the whole, everything has just decayed and is, is nasty. Um, 
Verse 8, or verse 9, it shall be like people, like priests. I'll punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. And so this is God responding to that and basically saying, like, you, you won't get special treatment. Like, you're not separate. You think you're, you think you're holy and you're pretending. People, people you're, you're putting yourself up on a pedestal and telling people that, that they need to give you things for their sins so that, that they feel better about themselves. But, like, you will be held accountable for this, just like the people will be held accountable for their, for their sins. Uh, verse 10, they shall eat and not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord uh, to cherish whoredom wine, new wine, which takes away understanding. Um, and so kind of, kind of more of that same thing. Verse 10 is likely talking about um, some Canaanite fertility rites um, where they would, they would uh, practice like temple prostitution, and, and sacrifices to false gods to increase their, their own fertility, like um, childbearing, but also crops and various things like that. And so like all of it, all of it. And the priests, the, the Israelite priests are, are participating in this and they're encouraging this. And it's just disgusting all the way around. And so, um, so God, is, God is pointing at it and saying, Here, here's where it starts. It starts with you. It starts with you, leaders. Um, and he, he doesn't pull any punches here. He is, he is calling it exactly what it is. Um, and so those first, uh, verse 4 through, through verse 10, is, is starting with the leaders. Right? He's talking about all of these ways that the leaders have, have led people astray and caused this problem. And then in verse 10, we're going to kind of transition. There's kind of like a little bit of a pivoting point, And he goes from talking about the leadership to like the people in general. Right, so this is now we're switching gears, and the rest of uh, this chapter is going to be addressing the sins of the people at large, of Israel. And so, uh, verse 12, uh, my people inquire a piece of wood, and their walking stick gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. And so, um, Part of that is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, my people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking stick gives them oracles. So they're, they're um, looking to false gods. They're looking to idols made of, made of wood or whatever, and, and asking those things to give them counsel instead of turning to, to God for those things. Um, one of the things that is a little bit confusing with Hosea also in, in verse 12 is kind of the first time it jumps out. So talks about whoredom a lot and prostitution and things like that. And some of the time that is actually like physical, like sexual sin and those acts. And some of the time that is idolatry and God using this language to talk about this thing. And it kind of goes, kind of goes back and forth. Right. Um, and so we, we see that in a few different places where he's talking about, like, they were engaged in actual sexual sin and uh, sexual promiscuity, but also they were in idolatry, and God's using this language to talk about that in terms of them being unfaithful to, to him. And so we see, we see this bouncing back and forth um, just a little bit. Um, and so this particular part here is talking more about the idolatry part of things. Um, 
Verse 13, they sacrificed on the tops of mountains and burnt offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. Uh, and so these, are, these would be common places of, of idol worship, right? So they're going to these places, mountains, forests, all, all over the place. They're worshiping idols in, in these common places of idol worship. And then it goes down and says, their daughters play the whore, their brides commit adultery. So this is like generational thing, right? So, so the men are doing it. They're involving their families in this worship. They're involving their children in this worship. They're, they're, I mean, it is, it, is, it, is, it is what it sounds like. And it, is, it should be repulsive, right? To think about like involving your children in uh, like temple prostitution and sexual sin, as a form of worship to a false god is, is what this is talking about. And it's, it's, it's really sad. Uh, and there's not, there's, there's not, uh, I don't want to talk around it because that's, it, that's what it is. And it's disgusting. Um, and verse, verse 14, we kind of continue that. Um, it says, I will, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And the people without understanding shall come to ruin. And so um, verse 14 is pretty, pretty controversial uh, in, in a lot of ways. But essentially, in a, in a time and culture when uh, women would have been uh, treated much, 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 much more harshly for, for infidelity, right, than, than men, which is probably still the case sometimes now. Um, but, but this is just saying, like, it's everywhere. We're not, we're not there's, there's nobody being held in to, like... Uh, Everyone is, is guilty in this regard. The, the women are guilty. The men are guilty. The children are guilty. Like, everyone is guilty in this thing. The whole thing is, is, is a mess. And so, like, we're not, we're not saying anyone is worse than anyone else uh, in this regard, which would have been different in, in that culture. Um, and then... Uh, so it just, I mean, it's, it's sad. It's a, it's a very sad thing. Uh, cautionary tale again. And so let's, let's keep going. We're, we'll turn a corner eventually, I promise. Uh, maybe. <laughs> next week. Well, next week we'll turn the corner. Um, Though you play the whore, O Israel, let, let uh, sorry, before we start, verse 15. So he's, he kind of says a little prayer here for, for Judah. Like, hopefully, hopefully it doesn't go to you. Um, Though you play the whore, O Israel, let, Judah, uh, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up into Bethavim, uh, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Their drink is gone. They give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Um, so uh, Gilgal would have been a really um, kind of prominent place in 
Hebrew religious culture. It was on the kind of the regular path of Samuel as he traveled around, and uh, Elisha had some some a group of prophets there. And so that's just saying like um, those places are corrupt. Don't go there. Um, Beth Avin is kind of like a pun, like a little bit of a play on words here. So like Bethel is the house of God. And here, uh, Beth Avin, he's saying like house of deceit or house of nothingness or house of disaster. So he's, he's like referring to that place, but saying it like it's, it's wasted, like it's, it's gone. That place that used to be a place of worship, don't go there. It's a disaster. Um, and, and, uh, and say, and swear not as the Lord lives. So that would be like um, kind of in our culture how um, somebody's saying like, like, I swear to God, this thing, right? Is, is kind of what that's saying. So like, as the Lord lives would have been, you know, if, if you said it potentially with, with meaning, like you're saying like, as long as God lives, I'm going to do this thing, right? And so uh, they're, they're just, but they're just saying it like, Whatever, you know, just, just like how, how the, the um, like, I swear to God phrase has just been, like, thrown around. Like, it doesn't mean anything to people. It's just, it's just a way to um, uh, use the Lord's name in vain, essentially, is, is what that is. And so that, that is kind of the same thing that he's saying here. Um, Israel's a stubborn heifer, or like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Um, and so, like, they're, they're not gentle, they're not... They're not uh, supple to, to where they can be taught or guided. Um, and, and then if uh, Ephraim would have been kind of in the southern part of Israel, the northern kingdom, kind of on the border with Judah, um, and they, they're going to they're astray. They kind of, uh, sometimes when it talks about Ephraim, it's talking about uh, like the whole nation of Israel is just like a, a way to, to a way to talk about them. They were kind of representative of them, um, but they're they're gone fully into idolatry. Um, and then eighteen and nineteen, it just keeps going. Drunkenness and sexual sin is just everywhere. If you haven't gotten that yet, <laughs> things are bad again in every way possible. Um, and then the last the last part, verse nineteen. The, and the wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifice. So that the wind there is like a like a whirlwind, like like destruction, right? So like they are they are set up to be destroyed and wiped out. Um, and then they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Um, scholars have a little bit of a disagreeance on whether that is sacrifices to idols. So like they're ashamed that they have been practicing idolatry. Or uh, their sacrifices to to God that have been done so poorly, so flippantly, so corruptedly that they are worthless. And so, like, there's a little bit of a disagreement on which way that goes. But I think either way, the point stands. Like, they're they're in rebellion. They're not doing what they're supposed to as the people. So that so we have a, a picture painted of the leadership. Here's all the ways the leaders have let things get out of control, and they have. Uh, not only kind of uh, passively let that happen, they have actively participated and encouraged that to happen. The people are also guilty because they're, they're doing all of this. They're engaged in it. They're in, their families are in it. Their kids are in it. It's a generational thing. Everything's going crazy. Um, and so then we, we go to verse, or to chapter five, excuse me. So we look at chapter five and here, um, 
It is going to talk a little bit more about leadership. Chapter 5 is not quite as depressing. Or sad, anyway. But it's still, it's still, it's still a little sad. Um, chapter 5 is going to talk about leadership um, and kind of more like political on, a, on a, na- a nation level, like the kings and kind of the more that kind of realm. Uh, so let's read, um, we'll read the first half of chapter 5. Hear, O priests, hear this, O priests, pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. The revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them. They and they do not know the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah shall also stumble with them. With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord. But they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. For they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Um, So in verse 1, he calls out specifically the priests again, also the people. But then he also talks about um, kind of the royal royal family, O house of the king. Um, and then we have, we have some, some different cities listed, uh, Mizpah and uh, Tabor just were, again, kind of prominent cities in the um, <clears throat> Hebrew culture. Um, verse 2, deep in slaughter. Um, some people, well, one of the commentators I looked at said that's likely talking about like child sacrifice, um, but also could be, there's a lot of disagreements on what, a lot of this means. So it could be other things. Um, but violence um, and, and child sacrifice could be one of them, or it could be um, just more like um, corruption type of thing. <clears throat> Verse 3, um, Ephraim again sometimes represents all of Israel, but in this particular case, he's talking about the specific uh, group of people, uh, Ephraim and their uh, he's saying, like, they're not, they're not hidden. Like, you, you were supposed to represent the people also, and, and you failed to do that. Um, verse 4 is, I think, noteworthy. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they do not know the Lord. So here, um, like, their deeds are, are talking about their, their heart specifically. And one thing I think it's important to point out is this is not saying that they are beyond being saved. This is saying that their deeds and their actions have put them in such a place where repentance is very, very difficult. Right? So, so it doesn't say like God can't save them. It says their deeds do not permit them to return to God. So they have, their life is built in such a way that like, they're so entrenched in their sin. It is so pervasive in their life. They're like every part of what they do is, is so rooted in all of this rebellion and sin that it makes uh, repentance practically almost impossible, right? It's just so, it's so a part of everything they do. It's not saying they can't be saved. It's saying it is 
uh, their, their deeds have made it so that that is really, really, really difficult. There are a lot of barriers there. Um, verse 5, they, and they're prideful about it, right? So not only are they deeply entrenched in the sin, the pride of Israel is testifying against them. Um, but God says they will, they will stumble in their guilt. Um, they, verse five and six, or verse six, sorry, they, uh, with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. Uh, their sacrifices, again, this is, uh, most commentators believe that this is talking about just their, their sacrifices were just so, so worthless. It was just checking a box. We're just, kind of, we're going to come. I'm going to, I'm going to give this thing, like I'm going to pay the taxes and then I'm going to go do whatever the heck I want. This is not meaningless. This does not change my heart. I am not contrite. I'm going to bring this, this goat and then I'm going to go party and I'm going to feel fine about it. Um, And so, uh, and in verse 7, they have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children, and the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Um, so, kind of have a dual meaning here. Literally, they had, they had illegitimate children because of all the things that they were doing. Um, sexual sin, again, quite, quite prevalent. Um, and so, like, God was not going to bless that. But also, like, they were unfaithful children. Like, they're unfaithful to God and the fruit of their life and the future generations. Like, he's not recognizing that either. So both, like, literal, actual children and also, like, kind of their, their fruit, the results of, of their life. Verse 8, we're going to turn a corner and talk a little bit more about, again, like, the political scene. Um, and so we'll read the rest of chapter 5. Blow the horn in Giba and the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth Avin. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like a dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a, lung, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face in their distress, earnestly seek me. Um, so verse eight, um, it lists a couple of cities and <clears throat> those are kind of border cities between Israel and Judah. And um, this is kind of talking about kind of impending judgment um, from those places um, verse 9, Ephraim is going to be the target of this destruction, and it is a sure thing. It is going to happen. I will make known what is sure. Verse 10, the princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark upon whom, upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. So what that is, um, they didn't have like a really great surveying and like land maps back then. They just put big rocks, right, to kind of divide where the land was, like, on this side of the big rocks, that's my land. On that side of the big rocks, that's your land. And so what, what 
greedy, sneaky people would do is late at night, they would go and they would just, just scooch them a little bit, <laughs> right? Not all at once, right? Because that's obvious, right? But if you just scooch it a little bit, and then a week or two later, you scooch it a little bit more, and then a week or two later, you scooch it a little bit more. Eventually, right, you're carving out, you're carving out a little more of your own kingdom. And so apparently Judah, Judah was doing that um, to Israel. So they're, they're like kind of carving away, and uh, God doesn't like that very much. Um, so they get called out for that. Um, Verse 11, verses 11 and 12, um, Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth, which again, we should predict that based on all the other stuff that came before it. Um, and, and then verse 12, uh, God says, I am like a moth and I am like dry rot. So, so now God is saying like, I am participating in the, in tearing these kingdoms apart. It's not just that they're happening, like I'm, I'm doing some of this, right? I, I'm, I'm like dry rot. I'm like a moth eating away at these kingdoms. Um, verse 13, uh, Ephraim and Judah, they, they see that there's a problem. Now, whether or not they see that there's a sin problem or just that there's total desolation and stuff going all over the place, they see that there's a problem, which is maybe good. But then what they do with that is bad because they go to the king of Assyria and they say, hey, can you help us out? And the king of Assyria says, no. And then later on, we find out the king of Assyria comes in and destroys them all. So maybe not a great place to go for help, but they tried it. Didn't work. Um, verse 14, uh, God says, and I will be like a, a lion to Ephraim and a young lion to the house of Judah. Um, I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and none, no one shall rescue. So God is saying, like, I'm going to be like a lion and I'm going to rip you apart. And then I'm going to go. And then he says, uh, and I will return again to my place. Uh, so like the language a little bit is like, it was just talking about lion. So like, I'm going to go back to my lair. I'm going to go back to like where I live. And I'm going to wait until you acknowledge your guilt and seek my face. And in uh, their distress, earnestly seek me. And one of the questions, which I feel like is a great question, that one of the uh, commentaries I read was, if God ripped them apart like a lion, what is left to come back to him? Seems like a fair question, I think. And the idea is, like, he has, he's ripping apart the, the like political identity. He's ripping apart the, um, the customs that have brought them to where they are. And he is leaving them totally kind of like, I'm a person and I'm desolate and I have nothing and my nation is destroyed and because of this drought, my livelihood is destroyed and my family is in shambles, and the king of Assyria didn't help me, and what am I going to do? And so, and then God says, like, and I'm here, right? I'm waiting. Okay, so we finished, we finished our two chapters. Great job. So, main ideas, and I want to, I'm being kind of intentional with this, because, uh, even though these are chapters that probably nobody really wants to read. 
They are in the Bible, and they are put there on purpose. And we believe that the whole Bible is, is profitable, uh, and so we want, to, we want to read it, and we want to let it sit, and we want to let the points land that need to land. Okay, and so what is this, what is this saying? What is this about? Um, first of all, it's a case study in rebellion. Sin is an absolute cancer in our world, in our lives, in our families. It wrecks It wrecks us as individuals, it wrecks our relationships, it wrecks our families, it wrecks our culture, it wrecks our nation, it wrecks our world. Sin is is filth and awful. And when we see how it plays out generationally, like God is clear about that, right? And so that's an application that we should take um, from that. Um, And so, like, in, in one sense, like, don't do that, right? Don't, don't do all those things. Um, and also, we should know that God, God takes sin really seriously. Um, and so, again, it was, it's put here on purpose, so we need, we need to, like, see how, how that sin is. Like, as we shine a light on it, and we see how, how disgusting it is and how, how destructive it is uh, to us, how foul it is to God, um, and how detrimental it is to us. So, so we want to we want to sit in that, and we don't want to rush to like the good the good things that we can take from this, because there's really good things that we can actually take from this. And and um, as I was starting to prepare this passage, like I was kind of like, oh gosh, I don't want to do this. But then, like as I as I see context and as I as I look at different things, like I, I ended up, and I hope we can get there with with you guys too. I ended up being actually encouraged by by what what there is here. And so I'll, I'll, explain, I'll explain why that is. It, uh, but I do want to let it sit. Like, when we read how sin affects our world, we should feel like this. Right? We should be broken. And we should feel this, like, this unjust thing. And, like, it shouldn't be... People shouldn't involve their, their families and their children in this disgusting practice to worship a false god. That's sickening, right? And we should, we should feel that injustice, and it should change us to want to do something about it, right? It should, we should be salt and light in the world and not turn a blind eye to the terrible things that happen, right? And that, that's part of what these things are for. They're supposed to make us feel uncomfortable, and so we don't want to just gloss over them. That's what sin does, and sin wants to hide, and so we don't want to let it hide. We want to, we want to talk about it. Okay, so now, what's good about this? Um, so there were literally no positive words in any of those two chapters. There's no grace. There's no nothing. There's, there's kind of at the end of chapter 5, there's a little bit of a void that maybe can be filled with grace, like God's like waiting. But that's it. That's the closest thing we have to, to a positive thing. Um, and how we read this is huge, and so context here is, is massively important, because if we're only reading chapter 4 and chapter 5, we miss a lot, we miss a lot of what's here for us. Okay, it would be like if we only read the part of the prodigal son story where the son leaves. 
Right, so I, I'm going to read that. Uh, Luke 15, it says, And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of your property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey to a far-off country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the uh, field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. If that's the only part of that story we read, we miss like a lot of it. Right? We miss a lot of that story. And so kind of the same thing here. If we only focus on chapters 4 and 5, we're going we're to miss a lot of it. Um... And so, uh, if, we, if we only read that, we just get to focus on the rebellious son. We don't get to focus on the loving father who's waiting for him, right? Because that son, we see his account, but, but we, in that focus, we don't see the loving father. We don't see um, the hope. Um, and so, our context is important because Hosea begins with setting the heart of God toward his people, that's the first thing it says. He says, Hosea, go uh, marry, this, marry this wife so that you know how I feel toward my people, right? And he, t- he says uh, in chapter, so in chapter two, a lot of this is laid out um, in Hosea chapter two, verses two and three, he pleads with them, he pleads with the wife to stop, pleads with Israel to stop. And he warns them like, please don't do this. If you do this, this is what's going to happen. And then Israel uh, rebels, or the wife uh, leaves. Verse 6 and 7, he puts up barriers to keep the wife from sinning. It says, talks about like putting up briars. So like he's saying, like trying to like stop, stop from doing this. This is like the, the caring family member who like flushes the drugs down the toilet, right? Or... Um, or something like that. Like, like I'm going to make it harder for you to do this thing because it is killing you. Don't do it. Um, verse 9, um, sorry, verse 6 and 7. And like the hope is in putting up these barriers, they'll return, right? They'll come back. They'll stop doing the thing and they'll do what they should have done instead. Uh, verse 9, hold on, out of order. Verse 9, um, he removes the false hope and the comfort in, in chapter 2. So chapter 2, it says, Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take back my wool and my flax, which were there to cover her nakedness. So, so at some point it's like, like you're going to have to just, maybe, maybe you're going to have to sit in jail for the night and maybe that'll, maybe that'll wake you up, right? I'm going to take away these luxuries. I'm not going to keep uh, <clears throat> making it easier for you to sin. Verse 14, though, in Hosea chapter 2, Therefore I will allure her and bring her back into the wilderness and speak tenderly to, to her. God is, is saying, like, please, like, come back. Come back to me. I, I want you to come back. I, I hate that you have done this to yourself. I want you back. And then uh, the goal, verse 23 in chapter 2, we see... Um, uh, I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to, my, to not my people, you are my people. 
And he'll say, uh, you, and they will say, you are my God. And so like the goal is redemption, right? So the goal of this passage is not an angry father standing back and saying, you messed up in this way and this way and this way and this way. And I'm standing here waiting at the end of chapter five, ready to point my finger at you. Like I'm eager to, to pour out judgment on you and say, like, look what you did. That's not what this is saying. That is not the point of this passage, and that is not the God that we serve, right? So, so what do we actually take from all of this? What do we take from chapter 4 and 5, both looking at it as these two chapters are put in God's Word on purpose and have something for us, but also there's a bigger picture here that, that we want to get a complete story. So what do we take from this? First, um, God knows the sin that is in our world and that is in our lives. And in this passage, we see God calling sin what it is, right? He points at it and he calls it out for what it is. He does not pretend that it isn't as bad as it is or that it doesn't happen. Like he says, like Israel, you played the whore, you abandoned me for false gods and for your own, for your own satisfaction, and so I think we should take away from that that we should be honest about our own sin like that, right? God doesn't tell Israel, like, I, I messed up, or I, or I struggled, or I uh, shouldn't have done that, that thing, or whatever it is. He says, like, here, is, here are the things that are killing you. I'm going to list them. And so we should talk about our own sin in that way. We should, we should bring it to light and uproot it so that it can't hide. And I think we should encourage others to do the same while being careful not to maybe do it for them because that is, right? Uh, while it could be helpful, maybe also could wreck some relationships. So maybe like, what do you mean by that rather than are you saying that you, I don't know what, you know, but like don't blast somebody, encourage them to... Um, to be honest and real about their sin. Um, second thing we should take away from this is we shouldn't read this again as an angry God um, looking and listing all the ways that his people messed up, like, you, like he's eager to punish them. Because that's, that's not what we see. Hosea, on purpose, sets the tone of God's heart toward his people before he lists all the ways that they have gone astray. That's really, really important. And we should read and understand that, that God is a caring and faithful husband who, who wants his wife to return. He's a loving father who, who wants his kids to come home. Um, and the last thing, and this is kind of going back to the original charge. So in the beginning of chapter 4, um, he said, kind of here's the charge. There's no faithfulness. There's no steadfast love. There's no knowledge of God in the land. Right? That's, kind of the, that's kind of the general charge. And then he talks about a lot of different ways that that plays out. So, so what should we do? We should be faithful and kind and know God. And, and that means we should know what God likes and dislikes, what God approves of and, and disapproves of. We should trust that what God says is best. We should know uh, the heart of God towards the proud, and we should know the heart of God towards the repentant and humble. 
we should know that while we were still sinners, while we were still in the, the disgusting filth, God sent Jesus uh, to be perfect for us. While we were enemies, rebels, unfaithful, all of those things, he, he sent Jesus. Okay, and so we don't have to wonder. We can know that if we, if we have faith in Christ, right, and we are, we are trying to work out our, our faith, work out that faith by trying to grow more into his likeness, that that's enough. He was the perfect son. He, he is the perfect spouse, right? And so we, uh, we can be credited that righteousness through faith in him. Um, and he gives us the spirit, to convict us of sin and to help us know more of him and to grow in righteousness. And I think sometimes we, we downplay that, right? But what's the issue here? What, what's the issue that Israel had? There was no conviction of sin. They were not growing in righteousness, right? They did not know God. And that's exactly what the Spirit does, right? In us. And he, he if we believe, he puts that Spirit in us so that we are accepted. We are uh, being transformed, Right. And so um, in a nutshell, like I, I feel like this passage ended up it it showed me obviously how how seriously we need to take sin, right? And not not sweep it under the rug. Uh, but also like how tender and gracious is God, right, to give us all of those things and and to say like uh like all of these things that, that seem like punishment are trying to bring us back, right? He's, he's a loving, caring father who, who wants to, like, like the, the picture, you know, the prodigal son, like, like I, I'm not even going to let you finish your apology. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you in and embrace you because I love you so much. Um, and that's, that's who God is, right? That, that's the God that we serve. Um, so I'll pray, and then I think Dan's going to come up and uh, introduce the Lord's Supper. Father, you are good, um, and your ways are, are so good. Um, I just, I pray that today um, we would see your heart in a, in a difficult passage, that we would, we would look at this, and that we would see how our rebellion hurts ourselves and hurts those around us and, and how your, your ways are so good for us. And when we leave them behind, um, terrible things will happen. Father, but I, I also thank you that you are, you are good and you put, you put barriers in our path as we run toward that destruction, that you call us back, you, you plead with us, you ask us, you you willingly accept us. You, you have given us Christ. You've given us your spirit. You, uh, you care so much for us. And, and I thank you that, um, that your grace can shine so bright um, against the darkness that we see in this passage. Um, I pray that you would, you would use it um, and that you would change our hearts. Amen.